Jeremiah chapter 14 tonight. And maybe a wee little bit of 15. Before we dive in this evening, two things from recent chapters that I want to review to help tonight's study make sense. If you need a Bible, wave at your friend Bud. Chapter 11 is where we find both of them. We're headed to chapter 14, but quick stop in chapter 11 this evening. There it is. And the first of two things I want to point out is in verse 3. Jeremiah 11, verse 3. God says to Jeremiah, Hey, say to them, say to Judah, say to the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And, and we took a deep dive into that. Over the course of the last several weeks, we've explored the implications of that. Chief among them, the fact that Judah did not keep the word of the covenant. They kept the, the southern kingdom of Judah kept it longer than the northern kingdom of Israel, but that's not saying much. Like Israel, they went after other gods. They indulged their pride and decided they knew better than the true and living God what was good for them. Really, that's the very definition of not keeping the covenant. And what does it mean? What does God mean when he says, okay, when you don't keep my covenant, I will, how does he put it? Um, Cursed is the man who does not obey. Cursed is the people, the land that does not obey. Well, God gives a whole list of consequences in various places mostly in Deuteronomy, but other places as well, culminating with removal from the land. That's that's the end game. That's where we'll end up by the time we're done with Jeremiah, with the people of Judah being forcibly removed from the land that God gave them and carried off into captivity in Babylon. But that's not where judgment starts. That's not the first wave. Deuteronomy 11, verse 7 One of a few places that we could go. And you don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Uh, I'm almost sure that I meant verse 17. I did. Take heed to yourself, Deuteronomy 11, 16, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. That's the leading edge of God's judgment, and he says so all the way back in Deuteronomy, and other places as well, but that's probably the most clearest rendering of it. Disobey me. Go after other gods. Go your own way, and you will receive judgment in one of the first ways that you'll experience my judgment, God says, is drought. So that's one thing that's going to put our study tonight in perspective. Drought is a consequence of disobeying God. The second thing that I want to remind us of, also in chapter 11, this time in verse 14, where God says to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people, speaking again of Judah, 
Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. It's actually the second time that God has given Jeremiah that instruction. Before we're done tonight, there'll be a third time. The first was in 7 verse 16, if you're keeping score. But all three times, chapter 7, chapter 11, tonight in chapter 14, God is making the same point. Don't think you can sin against me and then run to the temple and offer some offerings and sacrifice some sacrifices and pray some prayers and make things right. It doesn't work that way. The sacrifices, the offerings, the observances don't mean anything if you don't mean anything by them. If all they are 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 gestures. If all they are is you going through the motions, I'd really rather you not, God says. For a long time, God has been patient, urging Judah, change your heart, inviting Judah, repent, come back. But tonight, he's going to tell them, you're past the point of no return. You're past the point where I'm going to hear your prayers. So with that as backdrop, with that by way of reminder, let's turn and read starting in chapter 14 tonight. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. The word of the Lord concerning the droughts. We think of Jeremiah as a prophet, and of course he is. But when we think of prophecy, we tend to associate prophecy with foretelling, speaking history before it happens knowing and speaking the future, foretelling. But prophecy is equally forth-telling. And then this is an example of that. God is telling Jeremiah not what will happen, but he's explaining to Jeremiah and asking Jeremiah to explain to the people why the things that are happening are happening. And what's happening is a series of droughts. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts, plural. This is more than just, you know, your front lawn browning out because it hasn't rained in a while. The scene is grim. Judah mourns, verse 2, and her gates languish. They mourn for the land, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. This is a national crisis. No one is exempt. No, no one geographically, no one demographically is not feeling the effects. Verse 3, the nobles have sent their lads for water. That can either mean boys or it could also mean servants. They went to the cisterns and found no water. There was no rainwater stored up. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because probably it was the first time in their experience they were sent to fetch water and there was no water to be found. Verse 4, because the ground is parched, therefore there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads because they weren't able to produce anything. The crops dried up. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. And God is choosing his, his examples very carefully. In the wild, there, there is no mother animal more tender toward her young than the mother deer. 
mother deer, mama deers are, are, are as tender, as gentle, as loving towards uh, their offspring as any wild animal. And the picture here is that moms are leaving their babies and, and, and walking away. That's against the nature of a deer. Wild donkeys, also chosen carefully, wild donkeys have an amazing ability to smell water for miles and miles away. And, and God is saying, even the wild donkeys who can find water anywhere, their, their noses are failing them. The suffering is universal. There's no relief anywhere. And Jeremiah is not confused about why this is happening. O Lord, verse 7, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your namesake. For our backslidings are many. We've sinned against you. Jeremiah is not confused whether whether because he knows God's word or because this was part of the word that came to him, verse 1. He responds, God, we deserve this, but will you forgive us anyway? Now, scholars debate who's praying here. I mean, I mean clearly it's Jeremiah. But is it Jeremiah speaking for Jeremiah? Are these Jeremiah's own words from his own heart? Or is Jeremiah almost taking on the role of a priest, and is he speaking to God, praying to God on behalf of the people? And, and scholars disagree. In a sense, it doesn't really matter. God's answer is going to be what it's going to be either way. Spoiler alert, the answer is going to be no. Judah has passed the point of no return. And, that, and that's a sobering thing to, to, to ponder. It's a heavy thing to, to, to consider because we think of God as being gracious, and he is. We think of God as being slow to anger, and he is. We think of God being long-suffering, and that's who he is. But there comes a time, we talked about this a week or two ago, where God must judge or deny himself. At some point, God's justice cannot be denied. Otherwise, right isn't right, wrong isn't wrong, good and evil aren't different, and justice doesn't matter. We have a saying in our judicial system, justice delayed is justice denied. God is willing, time and time again, to push that principle right up to the line and delay it as long as he can. And, and we see that time and time again, God leaving the door open for repentance. Come through. Walk through. Dive through. It's closing, but you, but you can still make it. But then there's a tipping point. What is the tipping point? We get a clue in Genesis 15. God speaking to Abraham. It's the night of the Abrahamic covenant. And God says to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that, will not, that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions." Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When is the tipping point? What, what, is, what, what determines that? Well, God just said it's when iniquity is complete, when the cup of God's wrath for a people is full. What, what, what marks that full, though? Where's that, where, where is that measure of completeness? This might be just my weird brain, but I've always thought of it as kind of a multiverse thing. I, 
I, I know. But go with me on this. Because God's outside of time, right? So God who's outside of time and God who's omniscient can see every possible consequence of every possible decision that the sum of all of us together make exercising our free will. He knows every possible way, every combination of our choices will play out. And I think when those timelines converge and there's no possible future in which a people repent, there's no conceivable scenario where people do anything but embrace wickedness and evil forever, they need to be destroyed. When there is no more hope of that people repenting, God says it's time to take them off the board. I think it has to be something like that. Obviously, I'm not married to the details. But anything other than some version of that leaves God vulnerable to the accusation that many make that God is a genocidal monster, that he's not the God of grace, he's utterly lacking in grace, wiping whole people groups off the face of the earth. God has to be able to see that there's no conceivable repentance. So if we take that idea back to Jeremiah, we're left with a sobering conclusion. Sobering is kind of the word for the night, but it's accurate. Judah's in that place. Her iniquity is complete. Her iniquity exceeds that of the Amorites when God was talking to Abraham. They're perfectly, thoroughly, utterly wicked. And because of that, God is indifferent to all of Jeremiah's pious-sounding words. Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake. For our, our backslidings are many. We've sinned against you. Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger on the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst and we're called by your name. Do not leave us. Now, cynical commentators, because people read this differently, like I said, cynical commentators read this with a presumptuous tone. Read this as if it's Israel, uh, Judah speaking through Jeremiah, saying, in essence, you wouldn't dare, God. I mean, what would all the nations say if you judged us the way that you're talking about, the, the, the way that you've started to? The cynical commentators they, 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 they look at Judah, hey, you're just taking the words that Moses prayed in the desert, broken-hearted words, anguish words of intercession that Moses prayed over the people and said, God, if, if you wipe us out utterly, where's the glory in that? What, what will Egypt say? What will all of the nations say? You've, you've appointed us to, to be your standard bearers, to be your trumpet, to give you glory. God, if, if, if you wipe us out, all of the nations are just going to conclude that you weren't able to save us. That was Moses' prayer in the desert. It was eloquent. It was heartfelt. God heard it. God answered. But the cynical commentators say, Judah has taken that and they're reducing it to a formula. And God hates formulas. 
And God's not going to spare them just because they utter pious-sounding words, words that echo a prayer that God wants answered. Now, there's other commentators that take this at face value, that believe that this is really a heartfelt prayer, probably Jeremiah's prayer, verse 7, God, we have sinned many times in many ways. And verse 8, God, you are our only hope. You are the only one who can save. And verse 9, God, when you save the way that you have in the past, it will be for your glory and for your name's sake and for your reputation. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with praying the way that Moses prayed. It doesn't have to be presumptuous. It all comes down to the heart. And, And we don't know for sure. Is this heartfelt supplication? Is this formulaic demand? I don't know. And, and it almost doesn't matter, like I said, because God's answer could not be more clear. Verse 10, thus says the Lord to the people, I have this to say to that, thus they've loved to wander, they have not restrained their feet. You have wandering hearts, God said. He's reminding them that they're guilty of spiritual adultery. They go back and forth from idol to idol. I mean, and that was a lot of us. That was me before I was saved. From drugs to alcohol to sex to gambling to money to this to that. No commitment to anything at all whatsoever, but especially no commitment to God. And God's answer, why should I be committed to a people who aren't even a little bit committed to me? They've loved to wander. They've not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sin. And Jeremiah, God continues, you need to not be committed to the people of Judah either. I'm washing my hands of them. You need to separate your heart from them. Verse 11, Thus, then, then, then said the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people, for their good the third time that God has given this instruction. Don't pray. Their fate's decided. Their sentence, the sentence has been passed. The iniquity is complete. When they fast, I will not hear their cry, verse 12. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. What I will do, I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by pestilence. That's the third time we see that, sorry, It's the first time we see that trifecta in Jeremiah. We'll see it 15 times. Sword, famine, pestilence. Always with the same message. Jeremiah, don't pray. Their fate is sealed. It's it's like people, some sect, some cults, pray for the dead. And, And as a young believer, I didn't see the big deal in that. You know, what, well, what, what's the harm? Be- because I grew up in a faith where we did that. And some things, you know, you let go of faster than others. But it, it leaves us with the wrong understanding of God. It leaves us with the wrong understanding of our obligation to obey the gospel, to repent and turn to God. It puts the responsibility on, on God's shoulders. God, if I just keep praying, I can override the choices that that my friend, my loved one made in this lifetime. No. No, God esteems our, our free will too much for that. 
So we, we need to not pray in a way that gives people a mistaken understanding of the gospel. In much the same way God is saying to Jeremiah, don't pray in a way that gives Judah a mistaken understanding of their iniquity and my righteousness. Judah's prayers and petitions and sacrifices and Sabbaths and observances and offerings, they ceased to have any meaning for the people of Judah a long time ago. They don't believe in them. They're not repenting in them. When it gets right down to it, they have no faith in me. So there's nothing standing between my judgment and your people. And what God is, 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 is implying when he says famine, sword, pestilence, hey, the, the drought is just the beginning. It only gets worse from here. Verse 11 God says, stop praying, Jeremiah. It's going to be what it is. But verse 13, Jeremiah still prays. He still tries again. Then I said, oh, Lord God. You don't really mean it, do you? <laughs> Behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I'll give you assured peace in this place. And this begs the same question that we've wrestled with twice already. Is this Jeremiah praying from his own heart or is, is this Jeremiah praying on behalf of the people? Verse 13, I, I don't know what I think about the previous example. Verse 13, I lean towards this as Jeremiah just repeating something that the people are saying. Because it sounds a lot like blame shifting, doesn't it? Verse 7 sounded contrite. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it sounded contrite. Our iniquities testify against us. Whether, whether, he, whether anybody meant it or not, it's the right words. Verse 13 isn't even the right words. It's an excuse. It's not our fault. The false prophets led us astray. They promised health and wealth and prosperity no matter what we did. You can't hold us responsible. Don't judge the whole nation. Just judge them. See, I don't think that that's actually a defense that Jeremiah would make. I, I, I think... I think Jeremiah knew better than that. I mean, maybe in desperation, but after three admonitions to not pray that he comes back with this, I think he's praying on behalf of someone else. You can disagree with me and, and, and we'll all be friends. But I don't think this is genuine repentance. I think this is people trying to find a loophole to duck punishment. You can reach your own conclusions. There's nothing ambiguous about God's reaction. Verse 14, God says, yeah, the false prophets are false prophets. The Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. You're not wrong. The false prophets are false. That's why you call them false prophets. And they will be punished, verse 15, the, the false prophets will. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, who I did not send, and who say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. Because God likes irony. The way that, but, 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 but here's the thing. Those who listened to them will also be punished. Verse 16, the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem. Because of the famine and the sword, they'll have no one to bury them, nor their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. I'm going to punish the false prophets, but I'm also going to punish the people who listen to them. Why? 
because the way they were doing ministry, they practiced, verse 14, they practiced divination, sorcery. The way they were going about their ministry should have given you, in fact, did give you enough information to know to not trust them. You had all the information you needed to recognize them as false prophets. Instead, what did you do? You chose to follow them. You followed the false prophets because you liked what they had to say. You ignored the true prophets because you would have had to change your behavior. So why shouldn't I judge you, God asks. Instead of hearing me, worshiping me, obeying me, you went and made gods in your own image, and then you're trying to say, they lied to us. God's point, you wanted to be lied to. You found prophets who told you what you wanted to hear. Not even a little bit different than so many corners of the church today, right? Well, that sounds good. That makes sense. I, I, I think, in my heart, I think that's right. Okay, in your heart, you can think whatever you think. Does it sound like me? That's what God is concerned with. I, you, probably, you probably see the same things online that I do. One of the things that the cool churches are doing are at the movie Sunday, Sunday sermon series where, where they'll, they'll, the pastor will preach from a sermon clip and talk about you know, the morality and the goodness and the whatever from it. And, and I actually in, had a chance to talk to a pastor who was starting one of those series, and I say, so, so help me understand why you go there. Well, asking people to actually open the Bible, that's, that's too big a lift. In this day and age, we can't ask people to do that. Then how do you know what you're saying is true? And how will people judge from themselves what comes over the pulpit? Acts 17, 11, receive the word with all readiness of mind. Watch the movie with all readiness of mind. Yet search the scriptures to prove whether these things be so. You can't do that if you're not opening a Bible. God's holding us accountable for knowing who he is. How do we know who he is? It's not by watching a few good men. Even if we can't handle it, there's, never mind. <laughs> It's, 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 it's the same thing as churches that offer door prizes. You know, if you, if you, if you, want, to, if you want to do an, an outreach and, and give something away at the outreach or give lots of things, that okay, like, I mean, I, I'm not, it's not my favorite thing, but I, I, think, I, get, I think I could understand it. But there's churches that, that have door prizes for Sunday services. Gail Irwin told me a long time ago, how you catch them is how you'll keep them. And, 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 and if what draws people in is stunts and bribes, anyway. Verse 17. Uh, Therefore, no, you can't, you can't blame the false prophets. They're going to be punished. You're going to be punished for listening to them. In fact, say this word to them, verse 17. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. If I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with the sword. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. Now, you can find people who think that this is Jeremiah speaking, 
and Jeremiah is speaking Jeremiah's words from Jeremiah's heart. So, I, I don't. I don't think so. I and I think the the beginning of verse seventeen puts the lie to that. God says to Jeremiah, "Say this word to them. This word that I'm giving you. I think this is this is the Lord's heart. Surveying the carnage, surveying the wreckage of what His judgment demands. God who is outside of time, looking forward into the future, seeing." The invasion of Judah in 597, maybe, or the fall of Jerusalem in 586, I think probably, because where he says virgin daughter, that's a reference to Jerusalem. God's virgin daughter, Jerusalem, that has been made a harlot and is now receiving the consequences of her harlotry. I think this is one of those times where God is underlining for us. He takes no delight in judgment. He would much, much, much rather meet us in grace but he will pour out the judgment that we demand. Now, that, that causes Jeremiah to question again, God, have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there's no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, and there was trouble. And again, we're faced with the same question. Is this Jeremiah? Is this the people? Some commentators raise a third possibility that this is Jeremiah asking a rhetorical question. I was in a meeting this afternoon with Rob and some other people, and Rob asked a question that I knew he knew the answer to. He was asking, because he was trying to nudge me, hey, you need to talk about this more. Answer my question, because I'm trying to tell you in a, in a, you're leaving something out. I, I don't... I, I, I think maybe sometimes God does that. I don't think he's doing it here because three times God has said, don't pray for me. And God's not the author of confusion. He's not going to say, hey, don't pray for me and then tee someone up to pray for him. When God says, don't pray, uh, he, he means it. So this is either Jeremiah or the people trying once more, we acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness, verse 20, and the iniquity of our fathers. We've sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain, or can the heaven give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we'll wait for you, since you've made all of these. Jeremiah for the people, Jeremiah for Jeremiah. You can make up your own mind, but what he's saying he already said, God, your name's at stake, your throne's at stake, your temple's at stake, your glory's at stake. And if you answer our prayer, everyone will know that it's you because the idols can't make it rain. But, but whoever we think is, is praying here, two possibilities. Either it's the people and they didn't mean it, and they were just saying what they thought God wanted to hear, or, or it was Jeremiah and he did mean it, but his prayer was insufficient. Why? Why? I can't pray repentance for someone else. I can't confess somebody else's sin. I can ask God for mercy. But I can only repent for me. Rob can only repent for Rob. Grayson can only repent for Grayson. And Judah would not repent for Judah. Crossing over to chapter 15, once again, God's response is no soap. The Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. 
Moses and Samuel both interceded on behalf of the nation. Both times God heard. Moses in, in, in Numbers 14, Samuel in 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 12. God's saying, you could have both of them. Line them up. They could both pray for Judah right now. It wouldn't be enough, so, so would you just stop? And if the people ask why you're stopping, and if the people ask what's happening, and if the people ask what they should do, verse 2, actually the end of verse 1, cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall, be, it shall be if they say to you, where should we go? You tell them, this is the Lord. Such as are for death to death. Such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. What should we do? There's nothing to do. Here's what's going to happen. Some are going to die. Some are going to face the sword. Some are going to starve. And for those who are left alive, they're going to be marched into captivity. They're going to be carried into exile into Babylon. Verse 3, And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I'll hand them over to trouble, to all kingdoms of the earth, because of Manasseh the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Why this judgment? Why so gruesome? Why will you not change your mind, God? One word? What was the sin of, of Manasseh? Idolatry. What about mercy? Verse 5, who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will bemoan you? Who will turn aside to ask how you're doing? God's answer, I don't really care. You've forsaken me, says the Lord. You've gone backward. Therefore, I'll stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I'm weary of relenting. Word for the day, sobering. Also encouraging if we turn it inside out. Because every time we read these vivid, these gruesome, these gory descriptions of God's judgment, we're reminded that's what Jesus endured for us. As horrific the picture of God's wrath against Jerusalem, that and more is what God poured out on Jesus on the cross. So if we turn it inside out, there's encouragement there. But I think there's also challenge that we can't run away from. Go back to 14 verse 11, and we'll end here tonight. The Lord said to me, do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I'll consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by pestilence. What did God just say? He said Judah can do all of the right things. They can sacrifice the right Sabbath, sacrifices and observe the right Sabbaths and offer all of the offerings, and I'm not going to be moved. Why? Because their faith is in the sacrifices and not in the God they're sacrificing to. Their faith is in the feasts and the offerings and not the God who has blessed them with the abundance. They're going through the motions. They're hitting their marks. They're saying their lines. But those things in no way obligate God to show mercy. And I think that we can't turn away from this. 
I, I might be oversensitized to it tonight because not long ago I was asked to visit uh, somebody's loved one in the hospital. And, and the message that I got, hey, pastor, would you, would you go, uh, uh, you know, visit so-and-so, and would you see if you can get them to pray the prayer, the sinner's prayer? I, I get uneasy about that. Because does the sinner's prayer, do the words... Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I, I, I'm a sinner and I need your salvation or words to that effect. Do the words change someone's eternal destiny? I don't think they do. And I get nervous when people think that they will. He prayed the prayer. Now God has to bring him to heaven. No, what, is, what does Jesus actually tell us? He tells us repent and believe the gospel. He doesn't say parrot magic words. Repent and believe the gospel sounds like two things, really one thing. Turn from your sin, turn toward me. If, I, if I'm headed to San Francisco and I turn to New York, it's, it's both at the same time. If I think that I can just graft Jesus on to my sinfulness, to my wickedness, well, that doesn't matter anymore because I said, the, I said the name Jesus. I prayed the prayer, I'm going to heaven. I don't think it works that way. I think God just told us it doesn't work that way. I realize it's Wednesday night and I'm preaching to the empty seats. Except maybe I'm not. Because we all have people in our lives, I think, most of us, for sure, have people in our lives that are trusting in words that they spoke, a formulaic prayer that they repeated or recited. And we need to ask those people. We need to ask God to show us the right time and give us the right heart. But we need to ask those people, are you putting your faith in a prayer? Or are you really putting your faith in the one you're praying to? Food for thought on a Wednesday night. Lord, we put our faith in you. You alone can save. And because of, because of your blood, through the cross of Jesus Christ, you've purchased the price of our salvation. Everything we read that Judah is going to endure and more was poured out on you on that hill 2,000 years ago. And because of that, we can repent and believe the gospel and follow you. The first thing you said to your disciples was follow me. The last thing you said to your disciples was follow me. And tonight... Lord Jesus, we choose to follow you. Thank you for your love.